Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. You saw thousands of people along the rail line just standing there to say goodbye to Bobby Kennedy. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. Okay, so th this is <laughs> this is going to be fun. So our guest today on Great Minds is an old and dear friend, Marissa Freeman, Chief Brand Officer of Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Welcome, Marissa. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'd love to start by going back to a mutual friend of ours who we both worked with in different capacities, the dear departed, I think it's 11 years now, the dear departed Ken Case. Well, he was a mentor to me. In fact, he recruited me to DDB um, and put me in the role of uh, head account person on the Hasbro account. I had all this experience with Griffin McCall, which was the preeminent toy agency. DDB had bought the toy agency. Ken found me and um, literally doubled my salary to come over to DDB from Cliff Freeman. It freaked me out so much that I had to go like on a hiking vacation to meditate <laughs> to get my head on straight. But I took the job and it was, it was amazing. And Ken was an incredible teacher and mentor to me. Any particular piece of work that you got involved with that you remember fondly or, or a, a funny story from that era? There was, I think it's more about the agencies that I worked for and some of the, the brand turnarounds that did happen that were so shocking. Um, I, I mentioned Cliff Freeman. Mm -hmm. That place, I had a very short stint there um, because Ken came and found me and I left and went to work for DDB. But you could literally feel the energy and creativity in the halls and in the walls um, of that place. And literally the walls were lined with awards on the floor. They just lined them up all the way down the hall. Um, and it was exciting to be in a place like that and to meet the likes of, you know, an Adam Chasnow or an Arthur Bajour and and work with these greats who have now gone on to, you know, run agencies and do other amazing things. Um, and I loved it. And it, it, it taught me also to have a voice. Uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of times account people, when, when brand strategy became a thing and, and it decoupled itself from account work, we were looked upon as the bag carriers, but I didn't start out that way. I started out as the strategist and I happened to be an account person. <clears throat> so I, I expected my voice to be heard in meetings and, uh, and I've, I've always asserted that if I open my mouth in a meeting, it's because I want the work to be better. And my job as the account lead in the agency was to pave the way for more time, more budget, clarity on strategy, uh, and defending the work. And over time, when you work with great creatives, 
they don't always give you the benefit of the doubt for the first month or two, but then once you start demonstrating that you have the same goals and ideals that they do, then you have the best partnerships in the world. And that's what I took forward to DDB, BBDO, you know, beyond. And now with my agency partners that I work with as a client, <clears throat> you know, they have to, they have to listen to me. They have to, they have to listen to what I have to say because I'm the client and I pay the bills, but they don't have to like it. But I have found that over the years, I have created wonderful partnerships with my creative partners at multiple agencies, be it brand agencies, sponsorship agencies, ad agencies, media agencies, event agencies, because they see that I, I share their vision for doing brilliant work. But you were sort of, when you were starting out, it was sort of the beginning of the digital era, right? We were just ahead of it, you know, was, do you remember at that time, did people talk about it and say, hey, there's something coming that's going to change a lot of things? I've always gravitated toward technology and digital as just a curiosity and, and a, as another tool in the toolbox. And I remember when I was working at Cliff Freeman, we had Disney.go.com, go.com. And we launched that portal for Disney and the client there, he said to us, there will be a time when every movie, every TV show, every video ever made will be available for you to look at on your laptop or your phone. And this was 2000. It was before, two, it was before 9-11. This was the year because that's how I remember everything, right? In these moments of time. And we just all looked at him like, are you kidding me? Like, that's insane. But he knew and he was right. And he talked about Disney's go.com being the portal to anything you could ever imagine. If you can think about it, whatever your passion was, you just go to this portal, you type it in and it will magically appear to you. That was the vision. And Eisner had it right. He just maybe was at the wrong time. I'm not sure what happened there, but it was amazing. So you uh, do some great work for Hasbro and other brands. Uh, you're recognized by Omnicom as a force to be reckoned with. You're maybe 30 years old when you start there, if that, right? At not even, right, yeah. You get recognized, uh, a big catalyst award for integration in 2001. That sounds highly suspect, an award like that. Do you recall <laughs> any detail about the catalyst award for integration? I recall that there were 10,000 shares of stock associated with it. So I wanted That's that. That's very good. Okay. That, that makes sense. <clears throat> That's what I recall. And the way you go about getting that is if you help the new business directors and the, the other agency leads um, get introduced to and bring forth ideas to your client company. So we had Hasbro. There were 13 brands that I ran or something like that. Lots of opportunity for many other agencies in the Omnicom network to join. Tribal DDB had just started. That was the digital agency at the time. So we went to Hasbro and we talked to them about building out a digital engine and exciting digital experiences for their customers. And they got an inroad there. GMR was a sister agency 
um, Tonka Trucks wanted to take it on the road, literally. And so we presented them with an idea for a, a live experience. That was a traveling experience to take to kids all over the country, all over the world. They got in there. I was quite happy if the work was on strategy and it was new thinking, why not bring my partner agencies in? And so I did, and um, I won the prize. I think it's a great story. And, you know, there's so few examples of that stuff really working, but I guess it still comes down to somebody who's passionate about it and saying, I'm going to make this happen and, you know, break through those, you know, interior walls, because uh, it doesn't happen a lot. It also was exciting to me to be able to do things other than make 75 toy commercials a year. You know, I wanted to do live experiences. I wanted to pioneer digital. I wanted to talk to Milton Bradley about gaming and digital and think about the possibilities of where that might go in the future. Um, And it was nascent. All of it was at the time. No, really. I mean, you were five years, six years before the iPhone then. So amazing. (laughs) Amazing. Uh, And... Marissa, give us your take. You've been on all sides and now as chief brand officer at Hewlett Packard Enterprise, you're you're the client, you're managing a lot of agencies as you touched on. We're now seeing sort of the walls that separated creative and media sort of permanently come down, right? It's now a big free-for-all out there. For years, creative dominated, media was the afterthought, then media sort of rose up the perceived, you know, quote, value chain and has been driving and a lot of the best creative work you could argue, you know, the last period of years has come out of media shops. What's your take on the evolution of all that? You were sort of there for the whole ride. I have a dual passion for branded content, if you will, original content that you can make with media publishers, like a great big story or the Atlantic or any number of these New York Times who've created these uh, brand studios in-house, incredibly talented people, very smart, prolific with the idea generation. I still have a huge heart and belief in traditional media, television, radio, podcasts. I think of podcasts as radio, you know, it's the new radio. Um, So that will never be something that is not a part of my toolbox for brand building. And the the introduction of digital marketing and performance marketing and the ability to personalize messages in real time is is an augmentation to the brilliant creative work that can come before it. It it isn't separate. Oftentimes, I'm finding that people who are hiring or looking for, for staff um, at, you know, at my level, interviewees will come in and they'll talk all about building the pipes. And that's great. And it's critical that the technology, I I have a tech, I come from a technology background now, you know, that's my business. I'd love to hear people talk about technology and AI and the capabilities that, that automation can bring and machine learning. It's critical, but it doesn't, do you any good if what you put through those pipes isn't motivating, engaging, exciting, and relevant to the person who's on the receiving end? So I see the digital performance marketing as the other side of the coin to brilliant creativity. 
And when you have both, then you're going to clean up. You've worked on incredible brands and led teams for those brands. Procter & Gamble, both Gillette, Venus, so many other iconic parts of our commerce and our culture. Was there a particular campaign that you look back on fondly during your tenure at uh, Omnicom? At Omnicom? Well, you had, you know, you were two great chaps, DDB and BBDO. There was some work that I did with David Lubars that actually never saw the light of day because the client wouldn't approve it that I was madly in love with. <laughs> and we shouldn't talk about that. Um, there was that. Uh, I, I really feel a fondness for the work that I did at Deutsch. Okay. Um, there okay. were some campaigns for DirecTV that were just really, really smart and entertaining and memorable and talk, you know, talk worthy. Yeah. And I also really enjoyed working with the creative teams at the time. Michael Caden was the creative lead. There was another team led by Carrie Ruby under Michael. And we did some really amazing competitive work against cable that was directed by Christopher Guest, sure. which was an unbelievable experience working three days with Christopher Guest. <laughs> That's another day, another conversation too. Oh, um, but yes, those were, those were that work and the work worked, you know, work that works is a, is a famous expression in our business. And that work really worked. The sales results we saw were immediate, immediate. And that's a, that's a real joy and pleasure when that happens. Um, and then you end up at a different kind of gig at Time Warner. <laughs> so I, I got all this cred at DirecTV for crushing the cable companies. Really, truly, we, we did such a number on them. And I have to give credit to the clients there at DirecTV. They were really smart and really good leaders. And so we were a great, great team. Um, for that. And so Time Warner Cable was under the gun, trying to compete on all sides. And they found me somehow, uh, recruited me, and I interviewed. And it was a tough go because I was an, a senior level agency person trying to get my very first client side job, which is tough. That's, you know, now I think people move back and forth a little more freely. Um, but back then, you either were an agency person or you were a client person. And so I had the media lead, you know, I led the media team, I led the creative team, I led the account team. Um, and I made it through the interview cut. And they hired me at Time Warner Cable. But before they hired me, I told them this lovely man, Sam Howe, who will always have a, a place in my heart hired me even though I was three months pregnant with twins and I had no client side experience. <clears throat> and I ended up going on bed rest for six weeks, um, six weeks into the job. I ended up going on bed rest for 21 weeks, but I worked nonstop. See how we are now on zoom and how we're talking and working remotely. And I, I knew I could do it because I had spent literally the first, you know, quarter of a year, in my job, establishing myself at this company, 
over a squawk box. We didn't have video conferencing at the time. <laughs> um, I worked 12 hour days. I was just committed and I, I learned everything I needed to learn. And I had an amazing group of people around me to help me learn. Michael Diamond, who's now a very uh, revered professor at NYU teaching marketing was my, my cohort. And he, uh, he, he trained me well. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. And, and I do remember going back to what you were talking about earlier. I remember that direct TV work that really was memorable. Shall we raise our shields, Captain? At ease, Mr. Chekhov. Again with the shields. I wish you'd just relax and enjoy the amazing picture clarity of the direct TV HD we just hooked up. With what Starfleet just ponied up for this big screen TV, settling for cable would be illogical. <clears throat> what? I can't use that line? For picture quality that beats cable, you've got to get direct TV. Give us your perspective. You mentioned the story where they very uh, kindly treated you when you told them you were pregnant. Give us your perspective on where things are now. There's a lot of conversation about the challenges that are unique to working moms who have young kids and that an inordinate amount of the burden falls on the mother in the house. We know that to be true. And for the working mother, particularly tough. Are your kids back in school? Share some of your experience, you know, the last six months or so as a mom. I'm so fortunate that this didn't happen six years ago. My, my children are 11. They're twins. And so I said that. Um, and they're pretty self-sufficient. So their school did virtual learning. Um, and they did a great job of it, the school. And my children took to it quite well. You know, it was t- still tough. And the fact that they're only in school at the time, four hours a day, left the rest of the day wide open. I have a large team that I manage at work, and so many of the of men and women were really struggling with balancing having young children at home and showing up and being present for work. And we all gave each other a lot of support and a lot of leeway. I mean, one of the women works for me has three children under the age of seven or maybe eight by now, but little ones. Another woman that works on my team, husband, her husband was quite ill. He, he fortunately is on the road to recovery, thankfully, but he was on a ventilator for 40 something days. And she has a young child, same age as my children. And she had to manage all of that. And she still showed up and gave everything she had to making sure that she was able to be part of the team. And it was incredible. And we didn't put pressure on her. She just did it because that I think it kept her sane throughout the entire time. Um, And so many other cases, so many, some, you know, where the spouse wasn't quite as, you know, cognizant of their, inability to show up and, and, and help where I could see problems happening and had to do some almost marriage counseling on the side, you know, as, as a leader, you, you have to lead the whole person. You're not in, especially in times like these, you're not just 
their business leader. You are a leader and a leader really has to set a good example and be a good listener and, and pay attention to a person's whole life. So like so many other things, it comes down to the people and those that accept that mantle of leadership and those that don't accept it. Um, You're part of a very big, you know, storied company in American history. I'd love to hear from you, you know, as an insider, what has the company done? What do you hear from them that you can share on, hey, we recognize that this is tough for you, you know, make sure you keep some lines separate from, you know, work and home. You know, what, what's the company done to try to help its senior team as you try to look after the whole team? My company has shown up from the very top, and I mean from the board on down. Our, our CEO is a very caring and very um, warm person to begin with. His name is Antonio Neri. And he has children of his own. Uh, he he remembers what it feels like to have little kids at home. You know, it wasn't so long ago. And he's really genuine in his approach. Um, immediately got all of the employees around the world on conferences where he spoke to us directly and it was weekly, sometimes more than weekly. And they set up different ways of communicating with your leaders. We were immediately able to work from home. They, they focused on getting us technologically equipped to be able to communicate with each other. Uh, <clears throat> we set up a task force internally to manage and monitor the pandemic across the globe. I sit on that task force. Then the racial unrest began and we immediately activated our employee resource groups, went deep into the company to talk to African-Americans in America, black people everywhere, people of color everywhere around the world. Because remember, this isn't only happening in the U.S. Uh, we, We had a big listening tour and gave voice to those folks to speak directly to our community of of teammates, we call them, Um, provided resources for for those folks who perhaps needed a place to vent or wanted to talk more about what was happening and lend a hand even to, you know, give us advice on what to do and how to be better. So we're learning we are all in learning mode, but the, the thing I love about HPE and our leadership is their willingness to admit there's a problem, their willingness to dive headfirst into how can we help? How can we fix it? What more can we be doing? No one's hiding from this at my company, you know, and that, that, that makes me feel like I belong here. That is so great to hear. You hear so many stories the other way. It's great to hear one that's so positive. Talk about that notion that you talked about before that's so important to you personally about being involved in things that have a purpose. And you said one of the reasons why you're enjoying your tenure at HPE 
is because there's a purpose there, that they're trying to get stuff done to help people. Take us inside the HPE machine and tell us what's really, you know, on the front burner. Well, most pressing right now uh, is the work that we're doing with our supercomputers to help find a vaccine. <clears throat> so we're doing work um, with multiple of our customers involved in that. Uh, but we have one project in particular um, with a Dr. Boudre who's trying to find um, a natural substance to, to combat the virus, but so much work like that. And, and the way we just rallied around, what solutions can we provide, whether it's telemedicine capabilities or turning a, a ship in Italy into a hospital, um, just simply employing the same resources and tools and techniques that we use to get our teams up and running virtually, helping our customers do the same or finding $2 billion worth of financing to be made available immediately so our customers can afford to buy new equipment, new laptops, things that their customers needed. Um, we really showed up in a way just immediately living our purpose. Uh, it's not something that we said, oh, gee, we really should do this. It was just, that's what we do. Um, so that's in the moment. But our history, uh, you know, for from our inception has been to, to build communities, uh, not empires, to provide technology and in, in a way that helps humans. So many stories we, you know, this is the joy of my job is that I get to tell these stories of working with DZNE in Germany, a, a decades old program where they've been studying Alzheimer's, studying brain patterns and data and collecting it for years and years and years and watching how the brain develops over time and then using that data to help find a cure for Alzheimer's and using our compute power to crunch those numbers and provide that data. And now moving forward, thinking about how AI, machine learning, automation can rapidly accelerate what will become the new normal, automation, things like that. I'd love your perspective on both as someone with a tech background someone who's a, you know, all the way up the ladder and a major, major player in technology that's engaged in a lot of the cutting edge research that's going to have a pretty dramatic effect on where things go for all of us. What behaviors do you think we've engaged in the last six months that are more likely to hang around in a different way before this disruption? It's become very popular to talk, you hear words like the headlines, right? The new normal, you know, accelerated, you know, that this has accelerated the pace of change. What, what's your vantage point on what's real and what's not and what's going to stick and what's going to go bye-bye? It, it boils down to human nature. If something helps me have a better life is makes my daily experiences more pleasurable, more, more convenient. Um, then those are the things that will stick around. If for, for an, a business entity, if some of these changes have illuminated 
the fact that perhaps we don't need this much real estate or we can repurpose it for something else, um, those kinds of changes will, will stick around. I also think that because of this, I don't think it, I know it, because of the pandemic, some of the transformational technology projects that companies were planning to do and slowly budgeting for became less of a luxury and more of a necessity. And so the pace of digital transformation, if you will, has accelerated exponentially. And the capabilities of companies now post-pandemic will be greater than they were prior to. And so a lot of the wonderful things, you know, when we just talked about imagining an iPhone and, and, and imagining Netflix before anyone even thought it was possible, imagine now what, what's yet to come because so many of these companies now have the ability to use a platform to create and innovate that they hadn't quite constructed before because they hadn't invested in it. It's like going to Harvard every day at my company. There are so many smart people there doing so many brilliant things that sometimes I have to just take a break and go, ouch, my head hurts. I can't take it all in. Well, and I, and I would, and I would think these people, some, a lot of them have engineering background, which is a whole, oh, nother, a whole, a whole nother level of baseball that I could never play. It's crazy. And they're very, they're, you know what, Matthew, you could play with them because they're just like creatives. They're brilliant. They think differently. They love to have fun. I enjoy working with the engineers at my company so much because they remind me of our creatives back at the yeah. agency. Interesting. That's <laughs> great. That's great. And listen, you still got a lot ahead of you, so this book is not yet written. Oh, from your lips to God's ears. That would yeah. be good. <laughs> good. All right. Well, thanks so much for doing this. Are you kidding me? I love talking to you. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.